I will turn it on, Mark. I will turn it on. All right. Sound guy's worst nightmare. Preacher starts talking, hasn't turned his mic on. When I met with Rosalie Little about her faith and talking about Jesus and the gospel, she said at the end, she said, can I, I ask one thing? And I said, sure. And uh, I didn't know if she had like a deep theological question or what it was going to be. And she said, can I get baptized on the same day that we take communion? And I said, yeah, I think so. Why do you want to do that? And she said, because I don't want to wait. And I love that so much. Let the little children come to me, Jesus said. And she didn't want to wait. So we were eager to put it on this day. And then we were so uh, overjoyed when Livia joined in, when Eileen joined in. And what a great day it has been. This weekend, I went and saw the new Ninja Turtles movie with my kids. They showed the origin story of those Ninja Turtles. They were not always pizza-eating, crime-fighting turtles. They used to just be normal turtles until, you know, the ooze fell upon them. So they were baptized in the ooze, uh, and they transformed. And that was their origin story, and we learned about that in the movie. Everybody loves a good origin story. Peter Parker's beloved uncle dying and telling him with great power comes great responsibility. The Hobbit, maybe the best origin story ever. I mean, certainly maybe the most best-selling. We find out how the powerful ring that rules them all fell into the hands of little Bilbo Baggins, how the, the Hobbits got this thing in the first place. Well, we get an origin story this morning. We get a sort of prototype, a group of men who are the first of their kind. This morning, we see the roots of the deacon ministry of the local church in this passage. I don't know what you feel about deacons, but I love deacons. My father is a deacon. My father-in-law is a deacon. My best friend is a deacon. The men I view as spiritual fathers and grandfathers in this church, many of them are deacons. And lest I forget to say it later and say it now, our deacons here are the absolute tops. They make this sermon easier to preach because you know what it looks like. I did a house visit with one of these men two weeks ago. It was service of the most golden quality. We had to go to a homebound couple's house and serve the Lord's supper to them and to rejoice in the Lord together and to read scripture together and to just talk. And I got to do that with one of your deacons. There's also the negative stereotype of the Baptist deacon, the curmudgeon, the angry deacon, the drunk deacon, and some of that is earned by those who have sullied the position. And then some of it's just from movies and novels. But overwhelmingly, my experience with deacons has been that they are the servant pace setters of the church, and they are also the shock absorbers of the church. They're tender like their Lord. They're caring like the spirit who dwells within them. They are quite happy to be in the background as a servant should be. They desire what is best for their church. They love and support their pastors. And they love their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, often starting with those among us who are dealing with sickness, poverty, and difficult physical things. This morning, I want us to see where they came from. We have a blueprint for what the deacon uh, office would become. And that blueprint comes about because of healthy church government. 
Government that responded, leadership that responded to a potential crisis and turned it into an opportunity to show off the beauty of Jesus' church. And what we will see is that the way for the gospel to advance is opened up. The kingdom will continue to advance because of this healthy leadership and because of the way they address this issue with the men. A word regarding the context of the passage. Remember where we're at. Lots of opposition that the church is dealing with. In Acts 4, opposition came from the outside. Beginning of Acts 5, there's opposition from within with Ananias and Sapphira lying to the leadership of the church. And then at the end of Acts 5, Pastor David showed us last week how there is opposition from the outside again as the ruling authorities of the religious Jewish culture come and say, you will stop preaching in this name, and they are arresting the apostles, and they are beating on them again. And now as we get to Acts 6, we will see the deacon blueprint comes about because there's more potential opposition from within the church. And so it's just going back and forth. Opposition from the outside, opposition from within. Opposition outside, opposition from within. When God is at work in a church, so often this is the way it is. Acts 6, starting in verse 1. Here is God's word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that you are a God who speaks, and I pray that we will be a people who listen. Lord, I know that this is a passage that we may come to, a topic, a subject we may come to with presuppositions, preconceived notions, traditions, thoughts, opinions. Father, wherever, um, where, whoever we are, God, whatever our experiences have been with deacons and with pastors and with the government of the church, I pray that this morning we would just be yielded to your word. We wouldn't know what you have to say to us about this. Not what people maybe have even said to us in the past, that we would come this morning and that we would lay our hearts bare before your word and say, just speak to us, Lord, and show us how you order your church. Show us what's healthy. Show us what's best. Show us what's going to glorify you, because that's what we want. That's the desire of our hearts. We are a people after your heart, Lord. And so we want to know what you want for your church. We are your church. We want to do things according to your book, because we believe that you are right. And we want to agree with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
four points for us this morning as we go through. Number one, we'll see that healthy church government will not allow division to fester. We will also see, number two, healthy church government will not allow confusion in roles and responsibilities. Thirdly, healthy church government will not allow the congregation to stay on the sidelines. And lastly, healthy church government will not allow hell to rest. And we start this morning by looking at this dispute. We have an argument in the early church. It involves the Hellenist, Jewish people who speak Greek. They're upset because the Hellenistic widows in the church are not having their needs met. They're going hungry in the daily distribution of food. And this is a serious matter. This isn't just like you missed your barbecue on Wednesday night. Like you need to eat. You're depending on this food to survive, to eat. And so this is very important. There's also racial tension in play here. In first century Judaism, Greek-speaking Jews were treated as second-class citizens by the people who ran the Judean synagogues. The Pharisees looked at the Hellenists as Jews who had given in to the world. They had given up speaking the Lord's tongue, speaking the Hebrew for the Greek, the language of the culture, of the marketplace. In the eyes of the Pharisees, the Hellenists are Jews who pretty much gave up their heritage just to get ahead in the world. So when a Greek-speaking Jew in the church starts getting any sense that Greek-speaking widows are being neglected, it is going to reek of that old dead religion that they knew from the synagogue. Religion that Jesus exposed for being merely external. We don't know why the widows are being neglected. It could just be an issue of human limitation, apostolic limitation. There are thousands of souls in the church at this point. I, I honestly, I can't imagine the pastoral pressure that like Peter and John and the boys went to bed with every night. We got about 220 active members here at Seaford Baptist, and I always feel like I'm not getting to you. Pastor Ben and Pastor David always feel this way. We always feel at the end of the day we haven't done enough. I can't imagine how these men felt. Shepherding this giant, giant congregation must have been hard. So maybe they just can't keep up with the needs of the church. They're just men, just like you and I are, are, are human beings. Could be because of cultural barriers. Maybe the language barrier has gotten in the way and there is a miscommunication. Or it could be because of what I talked about. There could be some favoritism in play. Old habits die hard. Maybe the church is struggling to adapt to these two groups that used to not have a lot to do with one another. Suddenly, now, they have come out of the world into the church and are living under one spiritual roof, and there are growing pains. Or maybe it's a combination of all of this, but regardless, the problem is real. This helps us remember that the mother church in Jerusalem is a model church, but not a perfect church. In fact, there is no perfect church. There's only churches that are being perfected. There is no pure church. There are only churches that are being purified, including the church in Jerusalem in the first century. Even the reaction of the Hellenists show us that there are sinners in this church who are being sanctified. While they are justified maybe in their frustrations, they're not justified in how they handle it. That's a good thing for us to keep in mind. Just because you're right in your frustration doesn't mean you're right in your action and how you handle it. And the way they choose to handle it is to complain against their Hebrew brothers and sisters. They grumble against them. 
And Paul says in Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Could this matter have been settled without turning their mouths against their Hebrew-speaking family members? Well, of course it could have. I love how Luke doesn't run away from any of this. He just puts the newborn cries of the infant church on full display and says, watch how she struggles. This isn't some uh, sanitized story here. This hasn't had Purell rubbed all over it to make the church look like they don't have any issues. He says, watch her struggle. And Luke doesn't have a problem doing that as a historian because one, he loves to tell the truth, and two, because he knows the story of her struggle is also the story of her shepherd's faithfulness. Look how she struggles, and then look how he cares for her. And one of the ways he does that is by giving the church leadership that does something. So teaching point number one, healthy church government will not allow division to fester. Healthy church government will not allow division to fester. The apostles don't mess about here. They take action. They do something. Their flock is threatened. They go right to the issue and they begin to apply biblical wisdom. As men who pray, as men who study, as men who proclaim the word of God, as men who have been charged by King Jesus to lead his church, they do not sit on their hands. One of the final things Jesus told these men before he was arrested and crucified is that the world would know them by their love for one another. And so they know that gospel witness is at stake here. If we're fighting with each other about the daily distribution of food, if we can't be unified, well then we're not going to fulfill the love one another command. And our gospel witness will be harmed. Kingdom advance will be under threat. If gospel proclamation will be strong, their love must be strong. So the apostles must deal with this. There must be unity. However, if you look at verses 2 and 4, the apostles say it's not right that they would give up the preaching of God's word in order to serve tables. Again in verse 4, they reiterate the divine priorities. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles were given a commission from the Lord Jesus Christ to go in his authority and to proclaim the gospel to all nations. To baptize them in the name of the beautiful and glorious triune God as we have done this morning. To disciple them through the teachings of of Christ, his commands. And the primary mandate on their life is to fulfill that commission. And so naturally, as they baptize people, what are they going to do? What is Pastor Ben going to say to his daughter? What is Ben Barnett going to say to his daughter? He's going to look at her and he's going to say, you are now a fisher of men. You follow what the Lord Jesus tells you to do. And he said that we are fishers of men. And so you are now a fisher of men. And so people like Rosalie... People like Livia, they're going to run out into the world. People like Eileen run out into the world, proclaim the gospel, and then other people are going to be converted. They're going to be saved, and thus the church is being built under the leadership of the apostles. And so they can't get away from doing the work of fulfilling the commission and remain obedient to the call of the Lord Jesus. And that is why they say they cannot go serve tables. The Greek word, therefore, serve, is diakonal. 
means to serve or minister. We get our English word deacon from it. You don't need to go to seminary for that. You heard me say the Greek word, and you're like, I bet the English word deacon came from that. And one of the major reasons that we see this as a blueprint for the office of deacon is that Paul uses the same word when speaking about deacons in 1 Timothy 3.8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. It is a version of the same Greek word. It means to act as a go-between, a gap-filler. Paul goes on in 1 Timothy 3.9 and says, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their, live, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. If you take the description that Paul gives to Timothy for what a deacon should be and you just compare it with the sort of men that the apostles tell the church to call out from among them, men that are, uh, have a good reputation or of good repute, men that are spirit-filled, men that are wise, Stephen in particular is listed out as being full of faith. In many ways, this talk of good reputation and being filled with the Spirit, being wise, being filled with faith, it is just a more broad description of the servant that Paul outlines to Timothy. In verse 6, you see that these men are, are set aside for this task. They have hands laid on them. Cornelius Van Dam, speaking on this, says, When all factors have been considered, it seems best to understand the ordination in Acts 6 as to an office that would later be called deacon. Although they are not called deacons here, the first readers of Acts may have seen the seven as deacons. And then listen to what he says. This identification of the seven as the first ordained deacons has been the mainline position of the Christian church since the second century. They're blueprints for the office of deacon. So what about pastors then? If these are the blueprint deacons, are apostles the blueprint pastors? Well, not exactly. That's not the way that the New Testament talks about it. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we would not say that the apostles were pastoral prototypes. They stand alone as a unique office that existed in the first generation of the church. Unique in the sense that they all saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. They were called by him personally, even Matthias through Lots and Paul on the Damascus Road. When Paul spoke about his apostleship, he said that he is not an apostle from men and not an apostle for men, but an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father. The apostles laid the foundation of the church. Then pastors and teachers come along and build on the foundation they've laid, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, which is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Despite the fact that unlike these seven men, the apostle is not a pastoral blueprint, we can still draw a parallel from what we have in Acts 6 to what we're seeing Paul write to Timothy and write to Titus in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Because there is a clear division of labor. Serving tables is not beneath the apostles. It's just not what they're called to. There's no way for them to devote the time that is necessary to studying the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, praying, and then also running all the affairs of the church. And I'm not talking about governing the church, but I'm talking about being the rubber on the road that's actually getting the ministry done, getting the food, for example, to the widows. This was too big of a load for them to bear. It's not that it was beneath them, it was beyond them. They are just men. And they were men not called to that work. And so instead of leaving their calling to do something else which would be disobedience, they say, we will do what God called us to do. And they look to the church and they say, you nominate men who are called to this sort of work. So what you have is a division of labor between the governing of the church and the service of the church. And that is where we see the parallel to the pastor-deacon relationship. In 1 Timothy 3, we saw the qualifications for the deacon. The qualifications for a pastor or an overseer are listed before it. 1 Timothy 3.1 The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The Greek word in 1 Timothy 3 for overseer is episkopos, which means bishop or overseer. Interchangeable English terms that are a very accurate translation of this Greek word. That word is used five times in the New Testament, and in every case, it is used to describe those who are governing the church with the word of God. In Titus 1, Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The Greek word there is presbyteros. Best translates to elder. It is used 72 times in the New Testament. 57 of the 72 refer to men who are governing the church with the word of God. It is also used at times to describe older men and older women. We understand elder to be an interchangeable term with overseer because Paul's qualifications, if you read them, what he writes to Timothy and what he writes to Titus are pretty much identical. In fact, you'll also notice that the qualifications for the elder or the overseer and the deacon are pretty much identical, except that the elder or overseer must be able to teach. Peter expands on what overseeing the church looks like in 1 Peter 5. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. 
Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The Greek word for deacon occurs 31 times in the New Testament. And it is never used to describe someone who governs the church in the way that Paul and Peter describe in these passages. And yet, the deacon plays such a crucial role. Here's how we describe it in our bylaws. And and man, this sermon's so important to me that I tinkered quite a bit this weekend, and so some quotes are not on the screens. That's not the fault of our office manager or our wonderful people in the booth. That's on on me and I suppose the Holy Spirit. So... um, Here's our SBC bylaws, and I don't think this will be on the screen. You can just read this one, or listen to this one with me. The deacon fellowship, comprised of men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, shall represent and serve the ministry needs of this church family. Through knowledge and counsel, the deacon fellowship shall provide this congregation with caring ministry and biblical service. That's what our deacons do. And they do it well. Now, despite the fact that the deacons of SBC don't govern this church, the division of labor might be news to you because you grew up with an understanding that deacons run the church alongside the overseers, the pastors. Maybe you've seen that in church. Maybe you've experienced that in church even as a deacon. There's a reason for that. And all the fruit of it hasn't necessarily been horrible, but the reason is not necessarily scriptural, but more historical and traditional. So let me give our second teaching point and get into a bit of that. Number two, healthy church government does not confuse roles and responsibilities. Does not confuse roles and responsibilities. When you talk about Southern Baptists and deacons governing the church, there is a book behind it, but it's not the Bible. It's the Church Manual by J.M. Pendleton, written in 1867. There's one sentence people really took from Pendleton and ran with, He says, thus the creation of the office of deacon recognizes the fact that the duties of pastors are preeminently spiritual and that they should not be burdened with the secular interests of the church. Now, I have major issues with the way that he has worded that. As if the pastors do all the spiritual stuff, but you guys in the congregation, everything you do for us here, this is just secular. Everything that we do as a church is spiritual. But people took that quote and they ran with it and they said, pastors preach and pray, deacons run it. Pendleton got this from a man named R.B.C. Howell, who as far as we can tell is the first one to start suggesting in a, in a, in a, in a you know, widespread publication that deacons would have governing authority in the church. It was in a book he wrote called The Deaconship. Howe said deacons should govern the financial affairs of the church as a sort of board, and so Pendleton built on that. The views of Pendleton and Howe came in a time in which the church was evolving alongside the world. I recall my brother David Shin, one of our deacons, teaching us about this at midweek back in 2014 how the Industrial Revolution had altered the landscape of society. It took men out of their homes. And now they provide for their families by running companies, factories, sitting on executive boards. And they brought that mentality into the church. 
And so right around the time that you see RBC Hal writing, right around the time that the church manual is coming out, you see Baptist, church, uh, Baptist churches beginning to have, quote, unquote, deacon boards. By the 1920s, Baptist publications are openly teaching that Baptist pastors and deacons share the load of governing the church. And that teaching persisted as the standard for the next 30 years all the way through the 1950s. Robert Sheffield, a Southern Baptist, heavily involved in a lot of Sunday school work in the Southern Baptist Convention in the early 90s, he said back in 1990, we as Southern Baptists sometimes lapse into our traditions without checking them by Scripture. Hello. The Scriptures are to inform our traditions, not our traditions interpreting Scripture for us. Now, this brother's a Southern Baptist, so he's going to speak on his own tribe, but let's not act like we're the only ones with the issue here. All sorts of Christians, all sorts of denominations have lapsed into tradition without checking them by Scripture. But I want you to understand why this can become a major hurdle to healthy church government and to a healthy church. Because suddenly, when deacons are governing the church alongside the overseers, they cease to be the ministry assistants, the shock absorbers, the gap fillers who are serving tables so that prayer and the word may abound in the governing of the church. Now, they are a second governing power in the church that best case scenario serves in unity alongside like-minded pastors. But in many scenarios, the deacons become a second governing power that competes with pastoral authority, often confusing the church body. I don't believe we have that here. I'm just explaining how we got into the state of things in many Southern Baptist congregations. And you might say, is it always bad? Is it always a disaster? Of course not. It's not always a disaster. But sometimes it is an absolute, complete, unmitigated disaster. And I've seen that with my own two eyes, and so have you, if you've been in church for a little while. Sometimes it works out okay. Because some of those deacons are probably qualified to shepherd, to govern, to pastor. And therefore, they lead pretty well alongside the pastors of the church. But when it doesn't work out, and it is a complete disaster, it's because we have men governing the church that are not qualified or called to do it. And if they're not called to do it, and they're not qualified to do it, and they're not ordained and set apart to do it, it is flat wrong for them to do it. And that is when it is a disaster. Sometimes works out okay is not as good as thus saith the Lord. And that's the bottom line. There has to be a clear division of roles and responsibilities for church government to be healthy. Pastors, pastor. Elders, elder. Deacons serve. Pastors serve by leading. Elders serve by leading. Deacons lead by serving. Now, some of you hear this and you might think, but pastor, there are men in this church that I would follow. Men in this church, that they have taught me and I would have them teach me again. I followed them before. I would follow them again. And I want them to govern this church. I don't disagree with you. Not at all, brother and sister. I don't disagree. In fact, I could not agree more. I think the reason you look at some of your deacons and you say, but they can lead, is because God has men in this church right now who have trained by the trained pastors and elders who are here. They could shepherd right alongside of us. 
We have multiple men in this congregation that I believe are qualified to pastor and may just be called to it. Are you saying men who haven't gone to seminary would pastor and shepherd this church alongside hired men who have? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I believe it would be beautiful and healthy. Just imagine if something happens to me tomorrow. I'm not planning on going anywhere. Okay, but I could be out here cutting my grass this week in the ditch. I've had this thought, okay? I always try to make sure there's not a car coming. I could be out there cutting, and somebody's just on their phone texting. They're playing on Instagram just for a second, right? They swerve off and take me out. Remember when that happened to the mascot of UNC basketball a few years back? Just got taken out, just died. He was on the side of the road, just got killed. Out of nowhere. So let's say something horrible happened to me tomorrow. Ben and David would hold it down for a bit, but there would be a lot of upheaval. There would be this hiring process where like seven of you would get to know this guy for about 20 to 30 hours. And the rest of you would get to know him for like five to 10 hours. And then you would hold a vote and you would most likely hand this church over to a man that you barely know. And I think that is quite a roll of the dice. A pastor and a church coming together is like a marriage. If they get divorced, it's ugly and the kids get hurt. Should these things be entered into with such relatively little knowledge about who this man really is? Do you know how brutal it is to see a pastor out the door? I know many of you do. Now imagine something happens to me uh, tomorrow, and there's Ben, and there's David, and there's three men from this body who have been pastoring alongside them for a number of years that you have known for decades. You would mourn me, I hope. You'd miss me for a bit. But the stability of this church would be far less in question. With a multitude of strong men leading, maybe the church could take the time to get to know a pastoral candidate a little bit. Instead of knowing him for five to ten hours, maybe you get to know him for five to ten weeks. In multiple uh, types of settings. Hear him preach, hear him lead Bible studies, see if he can just like, be at an ice cream social and be a normal person. Don't act like churches haven't hired pastors and then about four weeks later gone, "Uh uh-oh, he's not a normal person. It happens. There'd be less of a time crunch. What I'm saying to you is that I would love nothing more than to train up brothers from among you to govern this church. I would love to teach them theology. I would love to teach them how to pray a psalm at a deathbed. I would love to teach them how to care for somebody's soul in the dark night. I want to teach them the pastor. And then I want to lay hands on them and ordain them and bring them to the shepherding table where we are devoted to prayer and preaching in a primary way. Now, I know some of you are hearing this and you're going, this sounds Presbyterian. It doesn't sound Baptist. What you're probably fearing in hearing me speak this way is that we would be some sort of elder-ruled church and that the congregation would lose their identity in how we run things. You're concerned that the congregation will lose their voice. And to that I say, let's keep reading the passage. Let me show you the beauty of pastors and deacons and congregation all working together to form a harmonious song that in many ways we're already singing at Seaford Baptist. What we see in verses 3 and 5 are a beautiful picture of congregationalism. A beautiful picture of the authority that lies in a congregation. I'll go back to our old buddy J.M. Pendleton just to show this brother's not an enemy, okay? I don't want want you to leave here thinking, oh, that J.M. Pendleton really messed everything up. It was one sentence, all right? I think he was a faithful man. 
He talks about three types of church government in the church manual. The Episcopal church government. Episcopacy recognizes the right of bishops to preside over districts of country, and of one of its fundamental doctrines is that a bishop is officially superior to other ministers. We reject that. Presbyterianism recognizes two classes of elders, preaching elders and ruling elders. The pastor and ruling elders of a congregation constitute what is called the session of the church. The session transacts the the business of the church, receives, dismisses, excludes members. We reject that. I don't think that's what we're seeing in Acts 6 or what we really see in the New Testament. Instead, I think what we see is congregationalism. I love congregationalism. Congregational church government says there's only one true authority over the local church. It's it's not Pastor Michael. It's not somebody you're going to hire or you're going to raise up from within. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's King Jesus. There is no person, no group, that can exercise supreme authority over the church. Every congregation should be, and in my opinion must be, free to follow Christ without the interference of councils and bishops and popes. And it also means that every individual in this congregation is equal. Standing together at the foot of the cross. My vote and my voice does not matter than, uh, more than yours. Neither does Pastor Ben's or Pastor David's. Sure, I know that I am a leader here, right? I know that I, I'm governing the church, right? We've talked about that. But when we vote on things at the end of the day, you don't go, well, Pastor Michael gets three. I get one vote. One hand raise. One yay, one nay, just like all of you. Because we're all spirit-filled believers who come together to form Christ's body. So while we may have leading authority in the church as pastors, as overseers, the church doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord Jesus. Church doesn't belong to the deacons. It belongs to the Lord Jesus. Therefore, pastors lead, deacons serve, but the power is with the body of Christ. Congregationalism, J.M. Pendleton says, distinctly recognizes these truths. One, that governmental power is in the hands of the people. Two, the right of a majority of the members of a church to rule. The will of the majority expressed, it becomes the minority to submit. Pastor Mark Dever has done an incredible amount of work to help articulate congregationalism for the church today, particularly Southern Baptist churches. And he says, Congregational church government leaves the local congregation as the last and final court of appeal in the matters of the church's life. Pastors lead, deacons serve. And the church responds with collective action. And when these three things work together, the church of God is in a position to function in health. And you see that in the passage this morning. It's an autonomous church. Nobody's telling them how they must handle this. They're a self-governing body under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They are choosing to submit to the wise leadership of the apostles, confident that the apostles are leading with the word. And then each individual, following God's leading, is selecting men, nominating them, and that provides a solution. So there is collective congregational action and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and their gospel preaching leaders. And the results are supernaturally phenomenal. 
the men that they choose, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 5, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Stephen gets pointed out because he's about to play a very important role as the first Christian martyr in chapters 6 through 8. But the reason that all of these men in their choosing is astounding is because what their names tell us is they're all Greek speakers. Meaning the apostles said, we can't do this. We can't meet this need. Congregation, select men from, uh, from among you. And as the congregation nominates men, they nominate men with a specific ability to solve this issue because they're men who speak Greek and they can make sure the Hellenists are being tended to properly. You're talking about thousands of people who came up with this solution together. Only in Christ can this happen. Only Jesus and his perfect governing of the church is going to lead thousands of people to say, it's these seven guys. And they select seven names who all speak the language of the marketplace. I'm telling you, congregationalism is beautiful. You see God at work in his people. Number three, healthy church government will not allow the congregation to stay on the sidelines. The reason that healthy church government will not allow this is because Scripture shows us a congregation with authority. Christ is the head of the church. He grants authority to his body, to his people. In Matthew 18, if someone is caught in sin and they will not repent after repeated warnings, who's ultimately responsible? for placing that person outside the congregation as if they are not a believer. It's not a small session of men, no. Who ultimately executes the discipline of exile when someone is obstinately rebelling against the Lord in belief and behavior? It's not councils and popes, no. It's the church. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning let him be put outside of the body. Later on in that passage, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be with them, right? That is not a passage about a prayer meeting. That's a passage about the authority of the local church. Where two or three are, he is there with us. He is granting authority to the body. 1 Corinthians 5, you see this play out. There's a man sleeping with his stepmother. He's stolen his stepmother. It's awful sin. And so Paul calls on them, when you get together as a church, as a part of official church business, you oust this man. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When you are assembled, the authority is with the congregation. Jesus told the apostles that he would give them the kingdom, uh, keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's the sort of authority that lies with the church. This is one of the reasons it's so important that we strive to have a church role that is filled with people that we know are Christians to the best of our ability. If this authority lies with the congregation, don't we want to make sure we have Christians in the congregation making these final decisions? Pastors lead, but the congregation is absolutely able to, vet, to, to veto bad leadership under the authority of Christ. Pastors preach, but the congregation is able to determine together who belongs at the Lord's table and who does not. 
Pastors shepherd, but the congregation are not just lemmings out in the fields. They are sheep listening to the word of their ultimate shepherd, and as long as the under-shepherds are leading in line with his word, there shouldn't be an issue. So what does this look like at Seaford Baptist? Well, our bylaws read this way. Pastor-led, that's biblical. Deacon-served, that's biblical. Ministry team-organized, meaning we use ministry teams to execute the work of the church. Council-sanctioned, we have a church council that is a planning and coordinating body. And then we are membership-approved. And that's congregationalism. The church membership is the final authority for God under matters pertaining to the church and reserves the specific authority to govern itself. It goes on to list out all of the ways that we do govern ourselves. We vote on things like membership records, budget, budget revisions, buying and selling of real estate, when we call pastors and ministry directors, constitution and bylaw changes. This is how we operate. And listen, when you hear me say that there are men who can lead as elders or lay pastors alongside higher pastors, I don't desire that in order to take authority away from the church body. I want to add more hands in caring for the church body. And I don't want to change the way we operate. Our bylaws say this underneath the heading of pastor-led. The senior pastor, along with the other pastors of the church, shall be the spiritual leaders, the shepherds of the church. What I'm simply saying is that men from within the body can join the company of pastoral leadership. More men to help us care for your souls. More men to help us make wise plans to bring to the congregation. More men to assist us in teaching the church. More men to assist us in counseling the church. More men to help us protect the church from false teaching. More hands to the pastoral plow. And hired pastors may come and go, but these are men who would remain. They would be here. In church, they're already here. They would simply stand alongside the hired elders, the hired pastors, as a larger shepherding team, sharing the load of governing together, shepherding together, leading a congregational church. A church with committees, a church with deacons, a church with ministry teams, a church with a church council. I'm just asking you to dream about this with me today. We're not ready for it. It would take me 12 to 24 months to train a man up. But your hired pastors who love you so dearly have been making adjustments to how we function as a pastoral team. We want to get away from this idea of King Michael and his knights. I know we chuckle. But I want to tell you, King Michael is dying. I can't do what I did when I was 27. This upward season was a cold, cold cup of water in my face. God looked at me and said, son, you cannot administrate all these committees and referee seven upward games and preach and pray the way that I want you to and be the guy doing all the hospital visits. No, and you can't do that. My kids are older. As they get older, they need more from me. As their age multiplies, they need more of my time. Our church is growing. You've seen that this morning. We hope that continues. Your pastor is changing. I want to evangelize this community more. I want to be in my office less. I want to be there when you need me. You make an appointment, you know I'll be there. If you get in touch with me, I'm back with you within the hour. You know me. 
but I want to evangelize this community. I want to do the sort of work you would expect me to do if you paid my salary and I was an overseas missionary. You would expect that I would evangelize this community. I want to be the missionary pastor to this community. But I also want to be the pastor in prayer and the pastor in pulpit. Therefore, I need help pastoring committees. I need help at your hospital beds so I would have more time to come to your home. And so as the three of us function in unity, it is our desire to add to our number from within this body so we can help care for our homebound members better, so we can have more gray hair in the room when we're making decisions. I have no hair. None of us have broken 40 yet. We need some old guys in there with us. So young men can see adult men rise to the position of elder in this church and recognize God could call them to do the same and we call young men to higher things. More continuity and leadership from year to year in committees. More continuity long term in the church's leadership. Again, I just want to reiterate before I invite the band up. Baptist search committees will meet a man and spend a grand total of five to ten hours speaking with them. Bring that man to a church. They might meet with them for four hours at the church, and, and they will just hand the church to them. And they'll look at men they've known for decades and say, nope, I can't submit to him. That's crazy. I don't think it makes sense, and I think that the Bible and our own Baptist history offers us a better way. And I think that better way is worth it, because look at the end of the text. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. One of the most amazing verses in the New Testament. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What in the world? This would be like if the elder men down at the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall repented and started coming to church here. We would be blown away. The gospel is advancing in Jerusalem through this healthy church to the point that priests are becoming obedient to the faith. Maybe some of those very priests that were preached to back in Acts 5. So as the band comes, let me give you my final point. Healthy church government will not let hell rest. I have seen this when churches are healthy and they are functioning in God-directed health from His Word, it is bad news for the gates of hell. Bad news. Hell gets no relief from churches with healthy leadership. Churches who have been healthy from the top down for years, they just wear the gates of hell out. Through the power of Christ and His conversion, they take Satan out back and despite all His best efforts, they just beat that dog senseless. Salvation after salvation. One loving confrontation with sin after another leading to sanctification. One wise biblical decision after the next. Hell can't stand healthily governed churches. So I want Satan to be bothered by us. I want Satan to be wearied from the losses that Seaford Baptist gives him through our obedience to Christ. And the more healthy we are from the top down, the more we'll do that. Shepherding pastors, serving deacons, authoritative congregation, all under a loving king. The origin story for the setup can be found in Acts 6, but the reality of that beauty, it's all around us, even this morning. Let's pray.